I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Very pleased to have joining us back on the program today, Patrick Brown. He's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and uh, had a great piece uh, from last year, but it seems to be more and more applicable to where we are today, uh, talking about uh, policy, family policy in particular. Uh, and so often we, we hear those uh, sweeping generalities of, you know, if we could if we could just be like Helsinki or just like Budapest uh, and uh Patrick, one, thanks for joining us, and two, uh, set us straight here. Is it as simple as that? No, it's not as simple as that. This past weekend was the Hungarian elections, in which Viktor Orban's party won um, re-election, and you saw the sort of resurgence online. Uh, you could saying, oh, if only we could be supporting families in the same way that Orban's party is doing in Hungary, all of our problems would be solved here in the U.S., or, or oftentimes you'll hear from folks on the left, if only we had a more supportive social safety net like they do in, in Finland or Scandinavia. We would solve all of our problems for families. It's not as simple as that. It's important for policymakers to be thinking about how we can be supporting families, but we need to do that in a way that that's distinctly American, that, that recognizes that the kind of heavy-handed, top-down approach to family policy that might work in a small country like Hungary or, or in Scandinavian country, maybe that's right for them, but America has a much richer tradition of sort of rugged individualism. There's definitely a, a need for us to be thinking about families, but doing it in a way that, that works with our national character rather than against it. Yeah, and it seems to me that some of those sweeping generalities around fin Finland and Scandinavia, uh, you kind of alluded to it, that, that it, it sounds good and it might be done, but, you know, that it, that might be the size of a, of a small county <laughs> or a small city uh, as opposed to uh, the, the vastness of, of America. What are some of the other weaknesses in that kind of thinking? And then I want to jump into, you know, what that could look like or should like in a, in a big, bold American way. The way that the left gets this wrong, I think, is focusing too much on fighting child poverty. And obviously, I think we all want child poverty to go down. It's not a good thing if a child grows up in poverty. But it can't be the only lens that we see the role of the family in. And a family is not just a way of making sure a kid has, has a roof over his head and food on the table. It's an organic unit. It's, it's a fundamental building block of society. And so we should be thinking about strengthening families in that lens rather than just taking a sort of myopic view about just this one factor of, of human flourishing. Again, an important one, but not the whole story. On the right, the problem 
has been, you know, for some of the people who sort of point to Hungary or, or, or some, some of these other Eastern European countries as pointing the way forward, is to um, assume that these, these problems can be solved through policy alone. And to say, oh, well, you know, if we only, you know, pump up the, you know, maybe the child tax credit up to $10,000 a year or, or something like that, that will, you know, induce people to have kids. It may also impact child poverty and some of these things, too. And I think that if you look at the economic literature, if you if you look at the polling and focus groups around how people view these programs and policies, that's just an unrealistic assumption. And, and people, you know, are more complex than that. People aren't having kids necessarily because they can't afford them, but because there, there are other trade-offs in life that are important to them. If we're concerned about, you know, making it more achievable for people to have families and to have kids, we need to be thinking about this as a, as a whole of society approach rather than just something that a big check from Washington, D.C. can solve. So as you look at some of those, and obviously going beyond just uh, the the left or right, because I, I think uh, both sides uh, tend to get it wrong when it comes to a lot of these policies, and uh, again, often doing that uh, by pointing to aspects of uh, of other countries uh, that might be doing well. And uh, as you alluded to at the beginning, Patrick, yeah, we should always have our eyes open to an idea that maybe a portion of that works. Or if we take that and add it to something else we've already got going, uh, then maybe that improves outcomes. Uh, but how do we actually get to this conversation really about outcomes and, and what that should look like? And then what is the proper role of government and, and what is the proper role of, of individuals, families and communities? The way that I approach this is, is by thinking about sort of the act of parenting as something that has as individual costs, obviously having having a child is, is an extensive proposition for families, but has you know obviously innumerable sort of personal benefits, but also benefits society as large, right? I mean, on a sort of very <laughs> fundamental level, we need future workers to keep the economy humming. We need social security to remain intact. There's sort of the, the nuts and bolts reasons of why fertility and, and childbearing is something that is good to incentivize, but also just the kind of society we want to be, um, welcoming um, all members of society, no matter how old they are, and, and, and building a public square that, that is welcoming of, of kids and, and, and adults and seniors and everybody in between. And I think those are kind of the, the policies we should be thinking about, you know, re- reducing some of the costs associated with having kids. Again, re- recognizing that, that people have these different preferences, different trade-offs, but if there's, if there's ways that we can make parenthood a little less daunting and help people, you know, who want to have kids but feel like they you know, have to give up too much or, or maybe can't afford it to do so, I think that's the right way to think about it. And then the other thing to sort of guide policy makers thinking on this is to be thinking about families as situated in a, a broader community. And and I think this is something that there is a, a real need for people in D.C. to be talking about sort of the role of neighborhood and community and, and the role of social capital that really can be a supportive structure for families to make it feel like they're less alone when they're taking the plunge. They can be surrounded by other like-minded families who are also going through the same things and they can find institutions that can provide them support with things like, you know, everything from childcare to, to school to after school programs and all the other ways that, that life happens for, for families. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that social capital is just such a, a critical component to this that, that often gets left out of the uh, equation. Uh, and as you talk about that social capital and and what we can do to best support the development of that. Uh, of course, we we often look at uh, a couple at the altar as the uh, the ultimate risk takers, and uh, those that are bringing a baby home from the hospital as the ultimate investor class. Uh, but but what are the things that we should be looking at that can 
that can strengthen or foster uh, those uh, that social capital project, so to speak, uh, and have that really drive things as opposed to something coming out of Washington, D.C.? Boyd, I hope you uh, blocked off the next hour for, for the discussion. <laughs> awesome. We got all the That's time it. you need, Patrick. Let her rip. <laughs> <laughs> that is, in my opinion, the million-dollar question, that, or billion-dollar question, you know, however many dollar signs question that policymakers should be thinking about in D.C. And I think it's essential that we be capacitating those institutions to give them the resources they need to be that support structure for families to make it easier for, for people who want to get married and, and to have kids. Some of that is going to look like, you know, resources from, from D.C. or from state government. And, and sometimes that can be the appropriate way to go about it. And sometimes it means getting government out of the way and letting, you know, faith-based institutions, community organizations serve people in the way that that's best in their, you know, as they see fit and, and not make them have to um, jump through some of the, the hoops and and, um, and run afoul of some of the regulations that sometimes get in the way. So I think, I mean, you know, it, it's really something that we need to be thinking more creatively about, about getting that sort of concept of subsidiarity, just devolving things down to the lowest level appropriate, because those are the people who know those families, who know those engaged couples, and can kind of give them the support and the guidance they need to take that next step on their journey. But that, that's not to say that, that policy has no role to play whatsoever. I think, you know, our, our economic policy mechanisms can orient ourselves towards a, a way that more, more people can be sort of stably employed, you know, breaking the sort of uh, college for all mindset and, and providing more pathways into the middle class with things like apprenticeships and community college. Um, you can you can kind of go down the list and of every policy matter that comes up before a policymaker, if you, if you think about that first and foremost through the lens of how does this improve people's prospects of, of having a stable family life, that breaks down uh, the left-right divide in a very interesting way. It doesn't, it's not necessarily fully conservative, it's not fully liberal or progressive. Um, you know, it might look something more like putting restrictions on the kind of scheduling practices that employers can provide their employees, which can sometimes make having a stable family life very challenging. And it could also mean getting rid of some of the regulations around faith-based child care providers and making it easier for them to respond to parents' needs uh, without having to jump through a bunch of different hoops. Or it could mean investing in, in parks and public spaces and making sure that families have places to come together to uh, act as community. But the, the primary focus needs to be about, you know, without trying to impose a vision from the top down, as we see in, in other countries, how can we be a, a building a bottom-up movement of parents and communities and, and those who want to support them and using policy to help activate that rather than trying to do it all ourselves through the government. Uh, fantastic. And I think you, yeah, I think you suppose, uh seven hours into into one minute there. That was very good. <laughs> uh, I do what I can. Uh, Patrick Brown, he's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a distinctly American family policy. Some great insight there. And we're going to stay with this conversation, Patrick. I want to have you back uh, to continue to dive into this because uh, I think it is one of the important questions of our time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Anytime, boy. Thanks so much. What I love about Patrick is he starts with what the right gets wrong and what the left gets wrong, and then we get to a place where we can get better. Stay with us. More to come on Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.